Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. Today, we have a wonderful show. Our guest is the founder and lead portfolio manager of Swan Global Investments, where he developed and now implements for about 20 years a defined risk strategy to help his investors with capital appreciation, while also providing some protection against large losses. We got to hang out a little bit in Lake Tahoe. He calls Colorado, Puerto Rico, and now the Bahamas home. Welcome to the show, Randy Swan. Thank you. It's great to be here. Looking forward to a lively discussion. So, Randy, we got a lot to talk about. One, I'm, I'm really excited to hear the origin story of your company, particularly since it's a little atypical and particularly since it was global headquarters was Durango. But you find yourself today having been misplaced from the hurricane. How, how are things going uh, right now? Are you... Uh, looking to be homeless for a while? Or are you going to be back in your home? How's life as a transplant? Well, things are pretty good as much as can be expected. Hurricane Maria came through and actually made landfall in my neighborhood in uh, Macau, Puerto Rico and Palmas del Mar. So we've been displaced since uh, September 20th. And so we decided to move the investment management team and, and the, the leadership team that was in Puerto Rico to the Bahamas uh, through the end of the year. And so we expect... Uh, the area that we live in to get electricity sometime between now and the end of the year. So our plans right now are to go back after Christmas and get, get reinstituted back in Puerto Rico. But otherwise, uh, it's definitely not an experience I would recommend for anyone, but uh, it's one of those things in life. You just kind of got to roll with the punches. And so if you find yourself in Los Angeles, we got a spare bedroom and office for you if you ever need it, but I imagine you'll be okay. Um, talk to me about being a, a kind of fellow Colorado person. I grew up partially there and Durango was one of my favorite places on the planet. But for the listeners who aren't familiar, give us the origin story of how Swan got started. Man, it must be 20 years ago now. And uh, and how you ended up in Durango of all places. Sure. It's, it's actually a pretty good story. So I started my career as a CPA and worked at KPMG and actually Houston. And I decided at 29 that I wanted to do something different. And I was an avid investor since a young, young kid. And I decided I want to start the new company and started the defined risk strategy. So I decided to move to Durango, Colorado. And it was really, it was, I grew up in West Texas. So I, I loved going to Northern New Mexico and Southern Colorado to ski and backpack and, and do hiking and stuff like that. So I really, it was more you know, enjoyment of the outdoors and what I want to do. And I felt like, Hey, if you're going to start a new company, why not go to a place where you can kind of enjoy the outdoors and enjoy the experience of living there. So that's really how I kind of joined or went to Durango. It was just, I had visited there as a young kid decided, Hey, I want to get rid of the, get out of the big city and move to the mountains. So Durango has been a great, great town. Obviously our headquarters are still located there. 
We still run our operations out of Durango and our trading. So uh, it's a great small town. It's a lot of fun. And I, I definitely miss sometimes the skiing, miss the skiing and things like that. I spent one spring break while well, the rest of my friends were down in Cancun or Cabo or something like that. I, I went to Durango with some friends to do some mountaineering and climb Engineer Mountain one spring. And my favorite part of that story was Durango has this awesome Old West downtown with this great old school Western bar and right out of like Deadwood. And I was the only person that had turned 21 at that time. And all my friends were under 21. But knowing me and typical Meb, I had lost my ID. So as we finished this climb and sleeping in an igloo underground for like four days, all we wanted was a nice hamburger and beer. And I was the only person that <laughs> was, was over 21, but couldn't have a beer as all my other friends had fake IDs and could have a beer. Anyway, Durango is a special place on my bucket list is to go skiing at Silverton right outside of Telluride. Anyway, after that aside, all right, so, so talk to me, Randy. So 20 years ago, give, give me the kind of, what was the, may not have even been a plan, but what, what prompted you to start a money management company, you know, coming out of KPMG, you know, was it just a little idea, a little bird in the back of your head? What, what, what was kind of the, the push? Well, it's a great question. I think fundamentally, I was always an avid investor, really liked the concept of, of doing something in the investment community. Obviously, I didn't come from that exact background. So it was really getting to a point in my career where I decided, hey, I really want to do something I love, want to try something new. I really kind of married my my experience as an investor growing up with my background at KPMG that worked mostly with insurance companies. And and the story always goes back to, you know, what do insurance companies really do? They manage liability risk. And I said, if someone actually on the investment side can do something similar in terms of you know, trying to insure or hedge your portfolio and use different levels of uh, deductibles, retention levels, and uh, reinsurance, et cetera. It really made a lot of sense to me. And so that's really, really what I think needs to be done. There's not really someone out there solving that problem. And really our philosophy at the time or the philosophy that I came up with is that the industry has always used modern portfolio theory as the solution to managing market risk. And so you know, I've always said, hey, I think that solves part of the problem, but not all the problem, because you really can't diversify away market risk. So, you know, using options, our strategy is definitely an option-based strategy. That was really kind of the philosophy or foundation of why we started the strategy, why Swan was really created. And I really didn't have any huge plans. I did not think at the time that we'd be growing to $5 billion plus, but it was really more, you know, what would I do with my money? I managed a small amount of money for friends and family, had built some CPA clients and stuff like that. And said, this is something that I think would actually, if I could pick one investment, this is what I would do. So that's kind of how we started the strategy in 1997. All right. So let's talk a little bit more about your philosophy. There's, There's two great quotes on your website where it says, the philosophy is always invested, always hedged. And I love this Oliver Wendell Holmes quote, prophecy as much as you like but always hedge. So let's talk about hedging. Let's talk about what you guys call the defined risk strategy. Why don't you give our listeners a broad overview of your framework and what the DRS is more specifically? Sure. We start from the premise that there's a there's got to be a better way to manage market risk. So what we try to do is try to take the basic principles of long-term investing, which is typically equities. We think equities are a great long-term investment, but you've got the issues of volatility how do you deal with volatility in terms of the experience for the end investor? So 
that was our basic premise of, hey, can you really pick stocks? Can you time the market? A lot of, you know, my experience is that's pretty difficult over long periods of time. So create a passive strategy. And so in the late 90s, if you remember, we had the dot-com bubble. We had the irrational exuberance speech by Alan Greenspan, and yet the market still took another three and a half years to top out. And so I think during the late 90s, it was really someone who benefited, quite frankly, from the 80s and 90s as an investor, but had gone through some of the ups and downs. And I said, what do you do when you think things are fundamentally overvalued, but you still want to remain invested in the market? And so the concept was very simple. is create a strategy that you can always be invested and always hedged, meaning protect somewhat to the downside. And that's really what we ran with, waiting for that inevitable dot-com crash that occurred, obviously, from 2000 to 2002. And so it was really, that was kind of the initial framework, is the theory that you can actually have a good experience from investing and try to reduce a lot of that downside exposure. All right. So let's talk a little bit about some kind of more implementation style specifics. When you, when you talk about hedging, what does that actually mean? I know you guys use options, but let's talk about the general kind of broad implementation, you know, and, and how an investor can think about this and, and kind of what it means. Sure. Well, I go back to our concept about the modern portfolio theory of using different asset classes to diversify to hedge out some of that risk. And so, you know, our first kind of confrontational point of that would say, are you really buying assets that's inversely correlated? And is it always inversely correlated? It's great until it doesn't really work, right? Diversification. So what we ultimately do is we invest about 90% of the underlying. And this, of course, applies to the different asset classes that we do the define risk strategy to. And then we will buy long dated options. And so we invest about 10% of the portfolio in a long dated put option that we know with a high level of certainty, if the market drops, you know, 20, 30, 40%, what that option is going to do and that, that it's, it's going to go a long way to protecting a lot of the downside of the market. So that's the fundamental concept. Obviously, from a compliance perspective, we don't really go out and talk about it, that it is insurance, but it's very much like insurance. And we go back to the, the view of, hey, most everyone insures most aspects of their life their auto, their house, their health, their life, but why not your portfolio? And so we think it's a much better hedge. The question always comes back to it, is it cost effective over the long haul? And that, that's a great kind of segue into, can you really come up with a cost effective way? And so when you get in the nitty gritty of our strategy, because we use long dated options, we think we avoid some of that rapid time decay that occurs as the option goes towards expiration. So there's a curve and it's, it's not a linear curve. It, it kind of goes off the cliff at the very you know, last three to six months of an option. So what we typically do, we'll hedge something over a multi-year period and then re-hedge every year on an annual basis. So what it really allows you to do is as the markets are going through bull markets, you're able to lock in higher and higher levels on an annual basis. And that means sell the original put that you used to hedge the portfolio and buy another put option at a higher strike price. And so if I give you an example, in March of 09, we were locked into 650. We had a 650 strike on the S&P. And right now we have a 2,500 strike price put option on the S&P 500. And so that means if the market drops to 1,800 on the S&P, that, that drop in that price, those put options will largely make up most of the losses in the portfolio. And so you don't have to give away this secret sauce, but are, are there any ballparks you guys are kind of targeting? Because I know in general, one of the cool things 
is you guys are pretty long term. I, I think I remember reading you traditionally targeting a, a yearly rebalance to the portfolio. Are you targeting sort of at the money? Is it 10% out of the money? Is it kind of a dynamic adjustment? How, to the extent you can be specific, any general rules about what, what's this kind of sweet spot for you guys? Sure. Well, having done this 20 years, I can definitely say that it's not some absolute rule that it's an at-the-money option every year. I think we've done something from slightly in the money to out of the money. We've never believed in hedging, let's say, 20% out of the money because obviously we think that first 20% is worth a lot. So the risk and trade-off has always comes back to how much insurance do you want and how much nothing is obviously for free. So we think something uh, you know, slightly in the money, slightly out of the money is the long-term goal. And so Really, what we're trying to do over a full market cycle is have that hedge pay for itself. And that means that you've changed the distribution of outcomes. Yes, of course, you underperformed during up years, but that bear market comes around like a 2007 to 2009, that it more than pays for itself. And so I think that just really comes back to how big of a bear market you actually have. The bigger the bear market, the more potential profit that you actually make on those put options. And at the end of the day, you decide, you'll be able to determine whether or not it pays for itself. But you definitely have a much lower volatile strategy that allows you, allows clients, quite frankly, investors to kind of stay the course and not sell out in, in a, like a March of 2009 scenario. And, and so thinking about it, you guys also, if I remember correctly, do a bit of option writing or option selling as well, partially uh, potentially to generate income or to just offset some of the costs of the puts. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and kind of, are you doing calls, are you doing puts, are you doing, and, and, and shorter term, what's the kind of philosophy there? Sure. So on a broad level perspective, in an ideal world, if you do believe that the long dated options kind of pay for themselves over a full market cycle, then what you're left with is what kind of income can you generate in various market conditions and so our goal would be, yeah, to be able to generate positive returns on an annual basis that either help give you more upside capture ratio in, in up years and help kind of pay for the hedge in flat years and in down years actually cover for some of the losses. So I could go through individual examples through the 20-year history where that actually works out. But at the end of the day, yes, we're selling. Just like I said, we like to buy longer-dated options to hedge our portfolio we like to sell shorter dated options. And that is because of the concept of the risk premium in the market. And that is what you systematically would make by, by writing options on a monthly basis. So typically we do short dated options. They're out of the money calls and puts. That's typically called a strangle. But yes, we do other types of spread orders. And obviously this gets into a lot of weird names, things like calendars and butterflies and stuff like that. But ultimately the goal at the end of the day is you want to sell options that are decaying at a much quicker rate than the options you're using to hedge the portfolio. So effectively, I always say that you are hedging the hedge, right? You are trying to offset some of the cost to buy that long-term, long-term protection on, on the downside in the market. And, and you've got to, you know, you're doing that on a systematic basis to try to generate income over a full market cycle. And so real philosophical question quick, and then we'll get back into volatility and some other good stuff. Having done this for 20 years, what's the main response from people as to when you were talking earlier about insurance, you know, and thinking about this under the category of, you know, a better risk adjusted returns. And by the way, listeners, you can go look up the Gips performance of the strategy that goes back 20 years, which you don't find a whole lot on Swan's website, but, but being able to frame a concept as insurance, why do you think it resonates so much with people for house, life, 
car insurance. And it doesn't really resonate as much with people on the investment side, or maybe it does. What, what, what's been your experience over the last 20 years talking to investors, advisors on how you know that they may not or, or accept this general philosophy is different from, from insurance in general? Well, I think, I think fundamentally people do understand and get that, but I think that they traditionally have not been exposed to that concept on the portfolio level. So if you just have a you know, one-on-one conversation with an advisor, individual investor, like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Why, why haven't I heard about this before? I mean, the industry, like I said, always goes back to their solution to manage market risk is really through diversification. So we're, we're kind of having to challenge the religion of the market to say, hey, you should invest in different asset classes and you should kind of be diversified and you just kind of accept some type of efficient rate of return or market return based on the risk level. So we do have to kind of overcome some of that with, with quite frankly, a lot of the advisors that kind of have adopted that kind of modern portfolio theory as a solution. But I don't think it's been that hard. Now, I do think it's been easier. It's getting better that there's more managers, more advisors, more products out there that are going down this path. And I think that's mostly because of the fixed income environment that uh, obviously the 40 of the 60, 40 really can't really hold up to its traditional value in a portfolio that's, uh, you know, stability of price and consistent income. So I think after the 2007 and 2009 sell-off, it actually has become more popular, more readily acceptable because I think some of the religion, you know, there's some chinks in the armor of the modern portfolio theory. So I would say it's gotten easier and easier to really get people and advisors to kind of accept this kind of new view or way of thinking for the reasons we talked about the fixed income, as well as, you know, how much did a diversified portfolio really lose in 2008? You know, typically around 27%, you know, 27% still a large number. Yeah. We've done a lot of calls with investors over the past few years. And I think it's really instructive to think just how much kind of mental and psychological not just not just financial, but mental and psychological damage. You know the bear markets can do. I mean, I've spoken to so many investors that just have this trauma from 2000, but but more importantly, 08, 09, and that have been sitting in cash ever since. You know, and, and they say, I just it's just I couldn't go through that again. But anyway, let's let's segue a little bit. I mean, I want to talk about volatility because I, I feel like this is something that a lot of people. It's in the media a lot, but a lot of people really don't understand. And and you guys probably know more about the the topic than anyone else. You guys just put out a new paper. We'll we'll put links on the show notes called "The Vanishing VIX: Implications of Low Volatility on the Market in the DRS." Lead author was one of your um, coworkers, Chris Hausman. Hausman. But anyway, so let's talk about it. So we all know that we're kind of in this low volatility world, and you see the headlines with VIX printing levels that really is is rarely if never been to what's kind of the broad thrust of how does this have an impact on the markets how can investors think about volatility and for any investors who haven't had a chance to read this paper why don't you give us a broad overview of of kind of how y'all think about it well so volatility the vix is really the primary gauge of risk measured by the market and so technically i think they combine a bunch of front month options and average the implied volatility, and that's one of the components or inputs to the calculation of an option price. Historically speaking, you're looking at somewhere around 19%. As you alluded to, this year, it's been extremely low. In fact, hit an all-time new low in the upper eighth. So from that perspective, what that says is the market doesn't think there's a lot of risk right now. From a contrarian view, I think that's great for two reasons. One, 
when you're insuring your portfolio and no one thinks there's a lot of risk, that's the time to be hedging your portfolio, uh, probably more than normal. So uh, everything else being equal, the markets, pricing, and we'll use the hurricane analogy. They're not pricing in a hurricane at this point. So um, if you were a new investor in this concept or what we're talking about at SWAN and hedging your portfolio with this low volatility, then everything else being equal, you're going to get really cheap insurance. VIX is also one of these kind of metrics that people think is a reversion to the mean kind of product. So that means that if everything else being equal and volatility is really low, eventually it's going to go back to the mean, which means it's going to increase substantially. And of course, we don't know when that would actually occur. But if you're a long-term player like Swan, and we have a long-term market, full market cycle view, that means there's an extra opportunity for you to benefit from that low cost moving to a high volatility environment. So we always get back to that concept of if you were going to hedge your your portfolio right now with put options, well, a low volatility environment is the best time to do that in. Now, we can argue about why that low volatility exists. I mean, I would argue that a lot of Fed intervention and trying to keep the party going and not wanting to really upset the apple cart. But at the end of the day, just like the, the Federal Reserve tried to avoid uh, what happened in the 2007 to 2009, and as well as the dot-com bubble, eventually markets do went out. They're bigger than, than the government, I would argue, and that uh, this is it's a normal, drawn-out cycle. So the low VIX is, I think, is a positive right now. Now, we can get into the concept of the article about you know whether or not volatility, low volatility is good for the option writers. That's probably a good question or a good discussion for us to have. Keep going. I'm not stopping you. <laughs> well, okay. So with that low volatility, there's still a lot of opportunities to make income by selling those low volatility options. And so the concept of, as I said earlier, the, the implied volatility is what the market is assessing as risk. And the really, the biggest key determinant of whether or not you make money by selling short-term premium is really the differential or spread between the implied volatility which is what you get paid to sell an option and the actual volatility, which is actually realized volatility, which occurs in the future. So if you sell, let's say a three month option or three month options, calls and puts, then the biggest determinant of whether or not you make money is what actually occurs after you sell those options, right? So if you, even if volatility is low, but you have volatility on par with what you've sold it at, then obviously you have a good opportunity to make money. And that is what the risk premium concept, which is discussed in this paper, is that on average, historically speaking, and is even true today, that the differential between the actual volatility and the implied volatility is usually positively skewed towards selling the premium, selling the options and making money on a consistent basis. And that means that if you just systematically sell options month in, month out, you are going to make some money. And one of the kind of questions right now is with all these people chasing the yield and engaging in these types of strategies, do those, that concept still apply? And, and I think this year is a perfect year. We've had lower than normal volatility. I know experiences at Swan is that, yes, we are generating positive returns in all our portfolios as a result of that differential. And so that is kind of the misunderstanding of the concept of you can't really make a lot of money if volatility is low. No, it's really that differential between implied and actual volatility. So those, those ebb and flow, obviously, over market cycles, obviously, as volatility increases over time, then that may be some short periods of high volatility that may make you lose money on those, some of those short-term option trades. But at the end of the day, that is a consistent profit-generating strategy that allows portfolios to generate some income. 
I, I wonder in general, so talk to me a little bit about this sort of strategy in general, as far as market regimes, what's kind of the best type of market? What's kind of the worst type of market with volatility and prices over the past 20 years? Is there something that's kind of the sweet spot and something where it's particularly exposed? Sure. Well, it, there's really a two-part question because we have, our strategy has a hedging component and an option income component. And interestingly enough, when I said it hedges the hedge, then that means those things are competing, right? So on the underlying portfolio, the hedged equity component of our strategy, the absolute best market environment is large moves up or down over a multi-year period. And so I'll go through the 2007 to 2009 sell-off. Um, although we did not make money, we lost substantially less than the market. I think our drawdown was about one quarter of what the market was. But what it allowed us to do is to sell those deep-in-the-money put options and rehedge at a lower strike price and use that cash, that extra cash, that differential in the cost of the options to reinvest and buy more shares. So this strategy kind of generates cash, allows you to buy more shares at market lows. Conversely, obviously after 2009 bottom, we're able to ride up a lot of those gains over the next two or three years after that. And so we benefited from volatility. And I think that would be more pronounced when you look at our gold strategy. We have a strategy on GLD that really it's been about the only asset class over the last three or four years that we do this for that really has shown a lot of volatility in the underlying assets. So we, we like volatility a lot in the hedged equity component of our strategy. Conversely, once again, it's not so much the actual volatility level, it's that spread between implied and actual that determines it, but everything else being equal, if you were to ask me what perfect strategy or what environment I would want it would be a high starting out with a high level of volatility and going to a low level of volatility because as that volatility, as that risk declines in the market, it allows you to make excess profits. And that's exactly what occurred in 2009 as the market bottomed out and the volatility you know, was slowly bled out of the market, really started in the year about 40 on the VIX, going to about 20. And so Interesting enough, that was, the, that was the biggest year in terms of our hedging costs because we started the year at 40. It means we had to pay that, that insurance premium, but it was also our highest income generating year ever. And so we had double digit returns that year. And so that shows you the kind of offsetting nature of the different components of the strategy. It's interesting. Is there, and is there anything in particular, having done this for 20 years, that you kind of look at markets and see, you know, maybe this time is different as far as structural changes, you know, whether it be, you kind of hinted at the advent of a lot more funds in this kind of search for yield. Is there a structural tilt towards option sellers? Is there anything that's kind of happened or changed over the past five, 10, 20 years that you think is, is a noticeable difference or impact on kind of the way you guys run the strategy? So from my perspective, there's more participants, markets more efficient. There's definitely more people out there trying to make some income from the selling the short-term premium just because of the low, low income environment that we're in right now. But I would say the biggest problem that I've experienced over the last six or seven years is just the almost that we've had this huge bull market. And then over time, people start getting antsy that they're not getting 100% of the upside in the market. I think that fundamentally causes problems. As any portfolio manager knows, is that no strategy works all the time. And so 
obviously you're kind of counting on a normal a full market cycle to kind of work your strategy to see that it actually provides a lot of value. And you briefly talked about gold. You know, I know you guys run a number of different funds. Is is there any takeaways where you say, yeah, yeah, Meb, actually in foreign markets, you got to think about it differently or in gold, you got to think about it totally differently. Are there, are there any differences if people can just apply this sort of strategy across all markets or is it something where you want to actually make some tweaks depending on, on the different asset classes? That's a great question. I mean, we have a fundamental view of you know almost any asset class as long as they have liquidity in the underlying as well as the options market is suitable for our strategy. That being said, you know, something like gold is a good example where the volatility skew, and that means that the further out an option is from away from the current price of that asset, the higher the implied volatility. That actually helps you in gold. That gives you higher volatility on the call side, which is not normal for most equity markets. But fundamentally, once again, when you're buying and selling options, it's somewhat self-compensating. So if I take something like emerging markets, right? Emerging markets is what I told you, you want a lot of volatility in asset, big ups, big downs over long periods of time, you'd say, well, it should cost a lot more to be able to sell that insurance or buy that insurance or that hedge on that portfolio. But it's also true that you pay, you get it paid back in terms of the higher premium you get on the short-term options that you're selling. So I think it's self-compensating. So structurally, I don't think there's anything massively different that we do from one asset to the other. There's a great research paper that was, I'm not sure which, who did the actual study, but it was engineered by the OIC, the Options Industry Council, and they, it's called Managing Risk in a Multi-Asset World, and they tested 17 different assets, and this included all the equity markets, bonds, gold, commodities, you know, oil, stuff like that, and they actually concluded that a strategy similar to what we do actually, on average, generated higher returns with less risk. And there was probably about a third of the assets that had pretty much the same returns with lower risk. So that's a good good research paper for anyone that's wondering, can these strategies be systematically be applied to multiple different assets and, and, and get good results? And I think that's a pretty good independent research paper that kind of shows this, this is a viable strategy. And of course, this is a much more passive strategy in terms of, you know, kind of like giving an example of selling an at-the-money option one month out every month for five years. And, you know, what did it mean to buy a six month option to hedge the downside? You you know, just very systematic rules based, no kind of active management in that process. So I think one of the cool parts about the strategy in general and and the main benefit is that it, you know, can keep the investor invested through the whole cycle, you know, obviously lower volatility and drawdowns. And I don't know the answer to this question, but do you guys happen to run multi-asset funds as well? Or are they all typically siloed by asset class where you're doing stocks and foreign stocks and gold? Do you guys do a combination where you just throw them all into one? Well, so the answer is yes. But the way I answer that is is that what we have is primarily four mutual funds that do the equity markets. So we have S&P, U.S. small cap, foreign developed and emerging markets. We have four 40X funds in that. The multi-asset products are more specialty products, like we have a Bermuda reinsurance company, and then we have a hedge fund that does multi-asset kind of optimization. So when we're mostly dealing with individual investors or advisors, you know, we, we allow them to kind of come up with that mix that they want to build their portfolio. So we don't have a 40X fund that's a multi-asset at this point in time. And that's something that a lot of people have always asked about that. But at the end of the day, 
we want to give investors options. And if they, if, you know, if they really like emerging markets or, you know, S and P 500, we want them to be able to get that exposure and get to choose that. So they can always do it obviously by combining their different mutual funds. No, no pun intended on giving investors options, but it's the challenge to you. You guys have obviously been very successful. Of course, you know, we always struggle with the fine line of ideas and funds we think are brilliant and then, you know, whether or not investors want them and trying to run a business is always uh, a balancing act. But I've told you this before, Randy, but if and when you guys ever want to launch an ETF, I'm more than happy to give you the ticker SWAN, which it may have expired at this point. I'm not sure. I'll have to look up. We, we used to have that ticker reserve okay. for other ideas and reasons. All right. Well, so let's, let's start to drift a little bit. And you guys have another good paper called Losing the Forest for the Trees and talking about active and passive debate and how it misses the point. Um, so why don't we get into that a little bit? You can tell us what is the point then, and, and we'll go off on some tangents there, but I'll let you talk a little bit about kind of the, the broad themes of this paper. Well, the broad themes of the paper, after you go through the kind of pros and cons of active versus passive, obviously there's been this huge move towards passive. We are fine with that kind of view at Swan because we've always used the, you know, kind of low cost tax efficient ETFs that started obviously with SPY in 1993. So we love that concept. You know, our strategy was really built on and based on, you know, not being able to really pick stocks better than the, the markets can. Of course, the flip side to the passive is the active is, you know, you know, there are some managers that over time do outperform the market. So, uh, you know, we are, our, our main view of the paper, our main thesis of the paper is that, it's okay to focus on active versus passive, but if you really miss the point, because you're really looking at absolute versus relative performance versus a benchmark, right? So if you take 2008 as an example, and you say, hey, the S&P was down 37%, can you really pat yourself on the back as an active manager if you were down 33%? I mean, a 4% outperformance, that's really not getting you what you want. And so so we think that's the main fundamental problem with the debate is, are you really accomplishing what you want? And I think we would all agree that, you know, with behavioral finance as it is, you know, your biggest problem as an advisor or an investor is, can you stay the course when you go through those bad cycles? And so, you know, coming up with a strategy that's more of a total solution is really what you should be focused on coming up with a portfolio that, that you're going to be able to stay the course and get the kind of rate of return that you want over long periods of time. And so, that's really what Mark Odo did when he wrote that paper. We think obviously it's a good concept to bring that to attention to people is that it's not about how you perform relatively. It's about what you actually make at the end of the day, right? That's, that's what we're all investing for the long-term capital gains and interest and dividends that we can get from our portfolio. Yeah, we, we end up talking a lot about it here. And, and from being someone who's a rules-based quant, it gets frustrating for me because so much of the debate you know, and the active versus passive, you know, in my mind, the passive kind of used to be a phrase that meant something 40 years ago, 50 years ago, but but now has been kind of so polluted by you look a lot of these indexes that are just kind of harebrained or kind of really strange and say that's that's really not a, a something anyone should be investing in. And on the flip side, you can have totally reasonable, basic, plain vanilla active strategies. So the the, the world and the, de the debate is I think not as simple as a lot in the media would, would like to imagine. So there's, we start out the conversation with a quote, and this is going to get into the, the ballpark of gossip, but you know, we said prophecy as much as you like, but always hedge. So talk to me about, you know, kind of the, the way you see the world today, as far as investment opportunities and kind of what 
you know, you guys are kind of, you don't have to predict, but is if there's any sort of like cocktail hour, have a coffee, gossip on kind of the way you see the world as far as asset classes, any other tidbits too, you know, the things that you guys think about, because I know you're not strictly quant, though, by the way, listeners, we're going to link to all these show notes and they have words like kurtosis and R squared and linear regressions out the wazoo, but you can go read those afterwards. But to talk to me a little bit about, you know, just kind of the way you guys are thinking about markets in general. And, and also, is there anything else that's on y'all's mind? Maybe you're working on or you're thinking about that's got you particularly excited. Uh, just kind of give you an open, open mic. Sure. Well, I think the biggest perspective is, you know, we're long-term value managers, I would say more or less than a traditional kind of active uh, growth type manager. So, you know, we look at the markets today in 2017 and say, hey, what's realistic over the next 10 years? I know this is always debated, it seems like every day, but, you know, we would probably tend to agree that there's not a lot of upside in the markets because they're kind of overvalued. And, and, and I think I always go back to the concept of, of, of how is this big kind of debt bubble, this, this federal in, intervention or the, the central banks around the world going to end? And we think it's not going to end good, but we don't know when it's going to be bad. And so I would kind of use that right now and say, if, you know, forecasting out 10 years, I don't, I don't, I'm not super positive on the market, but I do know that equities are the long, the best long-term investment. And so from that perspective, it's, it goes back to what you originally quoted, always invested, always hedged not knowing when things are going to go bad and having a systematic approach that allows people to get a good experience in investing is really kind of what we're about at Swan. And so we, we can, we're, we're very comfortable in our skin in terms of, of being able to stay the course, even, even when we don't look as good due to, uh, you know, quite frankly, a market that never seems to go down anymore. That's something that we're willing to kind of tie in the house. Is there anything in general, any indicators or any market conditions that cause you guys particularly to kind of deviate or what Cliff Asnes, I guess, would call sin a little when it comes to your strategy. So like, I don't know if the VIX is at 80 or if markets hit a P ratio of 50 or something where you would say, you know what, we're going to trim or stop, you know, generating as much in option selling, or we're going to tilt towards option buying, or maybe we're going to do X, Y, Z. Are there anything that kind of traditionally plays into that equation? Or are you guys pretty Puritan about sticking to kind of the rules of the strategy? Well, we always are invested in always heads. And that means that we're always going to ensure or have options that cover 100% of the notional value of the portfolio. So that's something that we're pretty adamant about. Now, where we would have some subjectivity and I, I'll give you two different examples. One would be, you know, when we hedge a portfolio, which is always, but when we actually rehedge, and that means to sell an option that was using the hedge and buy another one. That is something that, you know, you take a, a time like 2008, and nine, where we had two rehedge opportunities. We try to do get at least one every bear market, but but ultimately, yes. We in March of '09, we had to rehedge the portfolios, and we chose to do it. You know, quite frankly very good timing. I don't think October of 08 was necessarily the best time to rehedge the portfolio because you effectively have to pay for another deductible on that option. But there is some subjectivity in our strategy. We're not necessarily saying, hey, we're going to rehedge on December 31st of every year or September 30th. So, you know, our traders and our investment management team are going to make some educated guesses. Um, I would just say in March of 09, to me, what we saw was Markets making new lows, volatility has topped out and is actually declining. That was a good indication that it was probably having exhaustion on the selling side. In terms of the daily trading of the options and selling the short-dated options, 
you know, our traders are always looking at pops in volatility or quick uh, declines in volatility to either sell new premium or get out of these existing trades. You always have to have a little of both. So in other words, what I'm saying on our option income component is that there's always a component of our strategy that's always going to be selling premium month in, month out. And there's going to be components of our strategy that are waiting for those times where, you know, we think the odds are, are more in our favor than other times. And that's, that is part of our option income component. And so we always keep some powder dry. We would love to be able to sell it really when you use the, when you used 80 as an example, that was obviously in November of uh, 2008. And yes, you want to be taking advantage of that high volatility, that extreme volatility, but it's within the confines of the strategy. So I think that's the way I would answer that question is we're not going to always go out there and decide to hedge or not to hedge, but we are going to use market weakness um, as an opportunity to try to take advantage of rehedging the portfolio and rebalancing the portfolio, getting it back to kind of a more normal mix of, let's just say, 90-10. You may have mentioned this, and I apologize if we already touched on it. it are, the, are the options you guys are selling, is it traditionally straddles, strangles, spreads, naked? What's, is, there, is there a... Uh, hard and fast kind of style that you guys um, particularly lean towards? Well, I think our our strangles are our bread and butter, and that means selling an out-of-the-money call and put. Um, we're obviously matching it up to the notional or the underlying portfolio, and that would be obviously the put options as well as the underlying ETFs. But we don't just stop there. So we do other types of spread orders, and a spread order means usually two or more positions that are somewhat offsetting. And so we do other types of strategies like, you know, like a butterfly or a calendar spread. And so that is a part of our strategy across the board. That, like I said, I think that's more the kind of opportunistic side of, you know, volatility has popped up to 18 when it's been at 12 the last three weeks. We think that's a good opportunity to take advantage of that. You would pick a strategy, something like, you know, a certain type of spread strategy that you would employ at that point when you think volatility is kind of topped out and maybe going back down to where it came over the last week or so. So we do have some of both. You got to be careful of thinking that you're smart in the market. And so I go back to the concept of the risk premium of taking advantage of the systematic overvaluation of, of short dated options is our kind of main fundamental belief and how we take advantage of that is by systematically selling it with occasionally doing some opportunistic selling or buying of spreads. You know, it's it's funny as you think about this, and I cannot fathom why one of our listeners would want to do this on their own, but my co-host Jeff is options aficionado. I don't know what even what word we would describe you, addict. But let's say an investor said, you know what, I, I want to experiment on the, on, you know, with, with doing this on my own. Any broad kind of advice for them? I mean, I gave up options trading on my own many, many years ago when, of course, I learned the, the lesson that most young people learn, which is, you know, bl- blowing up your account by doing a bunch of dumb stuff. But glad I learned it when I was younger and, and didn't have much money. But, but let's say that people wanted to implement this on their own. Any broad advice for the people listening that may, may want to kind of do a little bit of this um, on their own portfolio? Yeah, I think there's kind of two steps or phases to this, or maybe three, actually. I think step number one is obviously there's a lot of option education out there. I think when I started trading options in 1992, I think it was, there was probably like five or 10 books out there. It was relatively new but I soaked it up like a sponge. I read everything. I took these different option courses, but ultimately phase two is you got to put something, you got to start doing something. So I would say experience, actual experience is necessary. And obviously you need to start small. 
And I think once you go through a multi-year period with ups and downs and experience different things, it's, it's, you know, to give you an example, it's really, it's really easy. One of the first things people do is they sell covered calls or they sell cash secured puts. And they think, oh my gosh, I've been making money for years. This is so easy. This is like uh, printing money. Of course, people don't realize that you go through the dot-com bubble that you wake up one day and their tech stocks are down 40%, you know, overnight. And that you may not recover from that option position. So, you know, I think the more experience you get, the more you realize what you don't know and how hard it is to actually succeed. I think any anyone can make money for a while. It's whether you do it over multiple market cycles. So I think it's just, it's, it's and then it's getting back to, you know, what you've had some actual experience. I think it goes back to, you know, what fits your, your kind of mentality. And so I think every investor has to do something that fits their personality and their persona and what they're, you know, the way they kind of work. And so, you know, we're more into the hedging and generating income. We're not in the speculation side of options. So someone that likes to take big leverage bets probably is not something that we would want to do and we don't do in our strategy. So I think getting fitting the style of option trading with your personality I think it's very important for the long-term success. I think it's sound advice. We always ask investors kind of on, on the podcast one question in, in 2017, which it's funny because the lead-in and, and the listeners of the podcast have heard this 10,000 times, so I'm not going to repeat it. But my, we always ask the guests, we say, what throughout your career, what has been the most memorable, and it could be good or bad, investment or trade you've ever made? And while you think about it, Randy, the reason I laugh is because mine was this options-related biotech straddle that I, I had done in the early 2000s and just maxed out my account because I knew uh, this was a perfect trade. And of course, uh, we all know the result. But thinking back on your last 20, 30 years, anything particularly stand out as the most memorable investment? Well, I, I think I've got two of them. And the, the one would be good, one would be bad, to be fair. I think the good one was the rehedge that we did in March of 09. Obviously, from a timing perspective, we couldn't have nailed it better. I think we actually rehedged after the low close. I think my negative um, is I was involved in some uh, strangles on gold futures, probably in 2007, that sent me on a wild ride where I had to adjust and readjust probably you know, a dozen times before I finally got out of that trade. And I looked back and said, what did I just do? <laughs> so that's something that wasn't obviously done in, in any of our actual products. It was more like on a separately managed account for myself. But that, that, that was a bad experience dealing with that and having to go through that emotional, uh, not only losing some capital, but some mentally draining process. And that just shows you, you know, how big the market is and how complex. And you just need to be, make sure that you're not highly leveraged to be able, and you make, you know, you learn from your mistakes and you move on. That's, you know, sometimes you can't always win in all these trades and you need to be modest in your, uh, in your approach. You know, and, and most kind of traders that have been at it for a while and have survived, you know, have plenty of scars where they kind of learn a lesson and, and it guides their rest of their career. For me, it was kind of becoming a quant because I didn't want all the subjective kind of decision-making, but is there anything that's kind of, you've changed your mind on over the past 10, 20 years where you said, you know, I'd, I've learned these lessons, or maybe this is something that I think is an important, that's kind of altered your thinking. Is there anything in particular that over the past few cycles you think stands out? Well, I think that the biggest, broadest view that I've learned is, is that you know, and I, I've definitely been a beneficiary of, of the bear markets over the last 20 years. And you always think that people are going to kind of learn and markets are going to learn and people are going to 
remember what happened, but the reality is they don't. I mean, we were sitting there talking about the lowest volatility that we've ever incurred this year, despite the fact that, you know, I think the risks are relatively high. So I think that's the thing that I take away is, is that people don't really learn. Human nature doesn't change. And, uh, you know, people were really burned after 2007, 2009. A lot of people have never gotten back in the market. And a lot of people think, hey, load it up, double down, let's, let's get leveraged. And I, I think that's something that uh, taken that in a perspective of how markets never really seem to, to kind of learn over time. I think it's, it's a pretty valuable lesson, actually. Randy, we don't have bear markets anymore. We're getting ready to, this is going to be kind of a, a drum roll for the end of the year. We're getting ready to potentially close out the calendar year, first time in history with 12 months up in a row, which has never happened before. I think we, we've only had 15 up months. I've repeated this the last few podcasts. So I, we talk about a lot about valuations and expectations here. And there's a recent study that came out that said U.S. investors are expecting um, over, it was like a 10, I can't remember if it was, I think it was 10 and a half percent return on their portfolio. And millennials were expecting 11.7, which, which seems a little high. Randy, it's been a blast today. It's very thoughtful of you to take time out while you're displaced. If people want to follow up, find more information on your firm and everything else you guys are writing and putting out, where uh, where do they go? SwanGlobalInvestments.com. We've got a team of about four or five individuals that are putting stuff out on a regular basis, whether it be blogs or white papers or research papers. So give that stuff out for free. And we like people to uh, read it and uh, learn stuff. And so I encourage everyone that has any interest in, in investing or options in general to come to our website. There's a lot of really good stuff and uh, it's, it's, a, it's definitely been a fun process. So uh, yeah, go to our website. Well, it's been a lot of fun today. I look forward to catching up with you in Puerto Rico when you're back in your house or perhaps even in Durango for a beer or a ski. Randy, thanks so much for taking the time today. Sure. Thank you. Listeners, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Send us feedback. Feedback at com. As a reminder, we'll post all these show notes, white papers from Swan and links to their site. Everything else in the episodes at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes. As always, enjoy it, hating it, whatever. Please leave us a review. Thanks for listening, friends. Good investing.